Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being very pessimistic and 10 being very optimistic, how do you feel about the future of your church? Hi, I'm Kent Hunter, the Church Doctor, one of several Church Doctors. I'm the founder of Church Doctor Ministries, and our consultants are called Church Doctors because we believe that the church is the body of Christ, just like the New Testament says. And because Jesus is the head of the church, I am very optimistic about the future of the church. Do we need some serious change? Oh, yeah. But the truth is, there is great opportunity right around the corner because God is God. Do you remember what Jesus says as he announces in the book of Revelation? I make all things new again. And that's true for me personally. Uh, God makes me new again, renews my strength and my insights and my zeal and forgives me and wipes me clean and gives me a new start every day. And the same for you. And multiply that out with all the people in your church. And guess what? God is still the head of the church. So we've been looking at the 95 theses of a new reformation time to clean house in the church and get back to what it means to be a biblical christian today's episode episode eight we're going to take a look at theses 70 through 81 of the 95 theses so uh, let's get going here this is going to be good number 70 many christians find preaching to be aloof academic sterile lacking and engagement Now, if you're a pastor listening to this, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those other guys (laughs) and women. No, actually, uh, (laughs) yeah, sometimes we get in a rut. And I did, too, as a pastor. I want to admit that. It gets to be a routine, and we need refreshment just like anybody else. And God wants that for you also. So if you find yourself getting stale, get into some new material read some new things, go to a conference, have a workshop at your church, or do something like that where you're stretched, where you're renewed, where you're excited. And of course, the source above all sources is to get into your Bible. And if you're in a a Bible you've had for the last 20 years, I'd like to encourage you to take a look at a newer translation of the Bible because language is alive and it changes regularly. And it's just a matter of encouragement and enthusiasm that you can gain new insights from a newer translation from people who are translating to today's vernacular, not the words of 20 years ago. And that would be true for all of us, uh, whether you're a pastor or not. Always take a look at some of these new translations. Sometimes I run into pastors or other theologian types who say, well, that guy uses a modern translation of the Bible. Well, actually, I use dozens of translations of the Bible because each translator brings way more knowledge than I will ever have about translating the Bible. And they also have new ways of expressing the same truths. And sometimes those new insights just fire me up. And I encourage you to consider that as part of your spiritual nourishment as well. Well, let's look at this issue of sterile preaching. Sometimes you have to realize, if you're not a pastor, that 
Pastors are under a lot of stress today. How would you like to be the pastor of a church that's been declining for your whole time that you've been there? And obviously you love the church or you wouldn't be a pastor, you care about it. You go to bed at night wondering, you know, how can we make it different? You see uh, more and more empty seats in church, uh, which is not every church's situation, but the majority of churches, you see the crowd getting older. And, oh, there's so many, so many that are discouraged. And so if you're not a pastor, pray for your pastor and encourage your pastor and make sure that pastor's getting some rest and uh, has some hobbies and is into the Word of God not just for preaching, but for personal encouragement and growth. I remember uh, a consultation that one of my colleagues, Tracy, did in the Detroit area, in a suburb of Detroit, and she was telling me she interviewed the pastor and said, how often do you read the Bible for yourself? Are you in the Bible? How, how is your spiritual formation going? And the pastor said, no, the only time I look at the Bible is to prepare a class or a sermon. Well, that isn't the same. That isn't the same when you're there saying, okay, what does this mean for me? So encourage your pastors. It's a tough time. And don't be so critical about some of that preaching that may seem that way. It really is important for all of us to look at the scripture and let God speak in a new way to us, which he will absolutely do if you ask him. Number 71, church people are masterful at symptom solving, but few deal with the root causes of what ails the church. And so a lot of times when we're consulting, one of the primary strengths that we bring to a church as professional outsiders who love the church is to look at the issues behind the issues. My training to be a consultant started with a man by the name of Lyle Schaller, who even most pastors may not remember depending on their age, but those that are older will remember some of the, I don't know, 60 plus, 70 plus books that Lyle Schaller wrote, all of which were very practical and useful and encouraging for pastors and church leaders during that era that he was alive. And he told me about when you go to a church, you've got to peel back the onion layer by layer till you get to the core issues. And that's true, and it's symptomatic of this issue that church people are always dealing with the symptoms and wondering why, when they deal with the symptoms, nothing really changes. It's because they're not getting to the core issue behind the issue. That's what happens when you go to a doctor. You say, well, it hurts here. Well, the doctor then puts a thermometer in your mouth to keep your mouth closed so you can let the doctor do the job where they will go and diagnose by a series of questions what the issue behind the issue really is because all you know are the symptoms and so now you know that there are two purposes for a thermometer one is to take your temperature the other one is to shut you up and so that's the way it works and that's why you go to the doctor that's why people come to the church doctor uh, for the church and it's one of the issues that you need to really be careful about. Ask yourself, what are the causes of issues? Because ironically, the big deal with Jesus is he died to resolve the issue behind the issue, which is sin. So what we see in churches so often is Christians who are busy swatting flies while camels are marching. <laughs> They're straining at gnats while camels are marching. Yep. Number 72. Jesus is the master of change. The people who spoke in the scripture about Jesus, the apostles, people that met Jesus, recognized very clearly and used picture language in the Bible. 
that talks about change, new life. Yeah, that's change. Darkness to light, that's change. Despair to hope, that's change. Healing for hurts, that's a lot of change. And yet, Christians are notorious for perpetuating system songs, prayers, habits, and traditions that have lost their usefulness decades, almost even centuries ago in some cases, and their usefulness is exhausted. So freshen up things, take a hard look. Doesn't matter that you're used to them. You care enough about your children and your grandchildren to know Jesus, to freshen up what feels good and old and brings back memories of your childhood. If it's standing in the way of the real issue behind the issue, which is Jesus and what he brings to people, then do away with the old packaging and put on the new to reach these children and grandchildren that you dearly love and your neighbors who have never met Jesus. Number 73, many Christians confuse style and substance. This is just another way of something that we've talked about in many of these theses, but it's important to include because there are two levels about every issue. One is the style and the other is the substance. And what is ironic about many declining churches is we err on both sides because style must change if we're going to be relevant. Now, Jesus came in the flesh and that flesh was style. It was the packaging. It was the delivery system. Jesus came looking like everybody else that he was reaching at that time in history in that country. He looked like those people. He didn't look like Taylor Swift or God could have looked like anybody, but he looked like someone who was one of those people. He came in the flesh, and that's what the first chapter of the Gospel of John is all about. He came looking like the people he reached in first century Israel. Just think, that's a huge change for the Son of God. I mean, he left heaven to come to earth. That's about as big a change. I mean, that makes tearing out the pews and putting in chairs small stuff next to what Jesus went through. And that's what people do. You're willing to go through anything that people will be saved. Thank goodness Jesus was willing to do that, willing to come. That demonstration of coming in the flesh is clearly God saying that he doesn't want any foreign style to get in the way of the salvation for people. God will do anything. He'll go to the wall. He'll become a person. Wow, that had to be tough. That's a big deal. And yet we argue about hymnals. Are you kidding me? We like the old hymnal? Come on. So many Christians are resistant to changing these styles, which is just crazy because we should be very willing to give up the old styles because Jesus shared the pattern. He showed the pattern. He demonstrated that you do whatever it takes. And he did on the cross. So that was a style issue. Let's talk about the substance issue. Number 74, the substance of faith is the word of God. And that word of God became flesh. But that word of God, Jesus in the flesh, that person we call Jesus according to the Bible, is always the same, never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's very clear. So the substance is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. 
But here's the mistake people make in the other direction about the substance. So while they hang on to the style, which is crazy, then some Christians and some churches, some whole denominations fudge on the substance. And this is terrible because what happens is they want to change the substance because they want to make God more like people. Problem is people are sinners. And what that is, is that they sync up with the culture norms of the day, which many of which, of course, are not Christian. They sync up with that norm on key issues. When things become a popular change and people are open to more secular ideas about things that are very, very important. And people say, well, yeah, we got to be with the times. Well, not on things that are substantive issues that are very clear in the Bible. We can't do that or we lose the power of the substance. And that's where we get our power. And so what people do sometimes is sync up so that they don't offend people of their worldly ways. Well, guess what? The Bible says that the gospel is an offense to people who don't believe. But it's not the kind of offense you do on purpose. It's just the offense you can't water down. Because once you do, you lose the power. You're messing with the substance. So while the packaging should always change, the substance should never change. As my friend Dr. Elmer Town says, methods are many, principles are few. Methods change, but principles never do. That's the difference between style and substance. Number 75, the best way to reach people is to speak their heart language. That's what the incarnation, Jesus in the flesh, is all about. So here's number 75, the heart language of a target group is the language they dream in. The heart language of the people you're trying to reach is the language they dream in. Now, I know pastors who use thy and thou, but quite frankly, I have not met anybody who dreams using the word thy and thou. And you know how I know? Because I've asked them. And so, you know, you can't preach, you can't represent Christ, particularly to unchurched people. But it gets more dicey than that, because if you're trying to reach people moving into your community that are Spanish-speaking people, and you require them to learn English to learn about Jesus from your church, because that's the only message that you present is in English, then you are practicing cultural chauvinism. And that's not part of what Jesus means to be in the flesh. And so think about that, because it's a very serious issue. You know what? Now, this is very sensitive, I know. There are a lot of children of people today who are their parents who are all in their mid-50s, right around there. Because we interview these people and we ask them, do you have children? Yeah. Do they grow up in this church? Yeah. Are they around here? No, they moved somewhere else. Do they go to a church? And then you see this sinking feeling take over their face and sometimes even tears. And they say, our children don't have anything to do with church. And sometimes they'll say their spouses grew up as Christians in a church, don't have anything to do with church. Here's a sensitive issue. Sometimes we do this cultural chauvinism with our children. How many times have you heard, and here's a sensitive part, maybe you've even said it, I want my children with me in church. 
and they squirm and they play with stuff and they sit in a seat that doesn't fit their body and they're listening to a presentation that is longer than their attention span by light years and they hear words that they are not prepared to understand yet and the selfishness of their parents requires them to sit in church and it's an awful, awful ordeal for the children. Well, I'm pretty sure that part of the reason, it might not be all the reasons, is that parents back in the day forced their kids to sit in a church before they were mentally, physically ready to be exposed to that long and that level of communication. And it formed them to not like worship. And that's a hard thing for parents in their 50s to think that they might have been part of the issue. But I want to say, if you are struggling with what I just said, it's probably not your fault. I blame the church for not helping people to understand this very clear understanding. Jesus came in the flesh. I remember once I was consulting a church in Omaha, and I talked to the children's pastor. It's a big church, so they have a full-time children's pastor. And I said, what do you say to people who say, I want to worship with my children? And his answer really was profound. He said, well, I tell people that's really important. If you want to worship together as a family, that's a biblical issue. That's a good thing. So we have a children's church where kids sit on the floor in kind of these, these carpeted risers sort of thing where they sit on the floor and it's made for their bodies and stuff. And because your children can't rise to your level of understanding of vocabulary and length of time and all the rest, but as an adult, you can go down to their level. That's what Jesus did. He came down from heaven to earth. You want to follow the pattern? Come sit with them in children's church. Come sit on the floor and worship. And then attend the second service while they're in Sunday school that's made for them with time frames and vocabulary and seats and all the rest that fit them. And I thought that's outstanding because we have not taught adults to be missionaries, not only missionaries to their neighbors, but missionaries to their own children. A little mission teaching would go a long way to help the Christian church, even in their generational losses. You can think about that a lot. If it keeps you up at night, I understand. Number 76, when a proposal is made by church leaders to add staff or facilities, some people will always ask, what is it going to cost? And they ask it right out of the chute. And you know what? Church leaders go on and try to explain, well, this is how we're going to pay for it. No, this is what we thought through and it's rational and all that stuff. Totally the wrong answer. Absolutely unbiblical answer to answer all that with, well, here's what we think we're going to do to get the money to get this done. Instead of that, the real answer is we have really worked through this, prayed through this, and we absolutely believe that it's God's will. Because if it's God's will, it's God's bill. God pays for what he orders. He's in charge of everything. And if you really have done your homework spiritually, that's all you have to say. It doesn't have to make sense. I can't believe how many churches I've been to that had a building project and a good portion of the people said, this will never happen. In fact, I was a pastor of a church where a guy by the name of Dave just confronted me right away. And he said, we'll never be able to pay for this. And of course we did. And of course, most churches do. It almost happens entirely unanimously that churches get through it. But the real issue is, is it God's will? 
God pays for what he orders. And he can do it even though you have no idea how he can do it. That does not mean you're stupid and you don't do planning and you're just operating on a subversive will where you just haven't thought it through, haven't any plans, that you haven't really prayed about it. No, that doesn't excuse stupid behavior, childish approach to things, but it is a childlike faith. It's not childish, it's childlike. Number 77, God's approach to generosity is not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. God's approach to generosity. You know, it is amazing to me that it's very clear in the Bible. I mean, it is absolutely no question that God, from the beginning, in the Old Testament, always approached giving back to God as an honor and as a part of worship and as a way to foot the bills of the mission and the ministry. He always approached it as a percentage, not a dollar amount. It is absolutely easy to understand. In the Old Testament, it even had a name. It was called the tithe. A tithe was considered the minimum that you would give if you were a real believer. A tithe is a way of saying 10%. 10% of whatever God has given you goes back to God. That's a minimum in the New Testament. People said, oh, we can do better than that. We're going to have not only a tithe, but after that, we're going to give a portion above that, which is an offering. And beyond that, at times, when there's a special need that pops up in our community, people lose their house and we want to take an offering. We'll have a door offering, which they called alms, A-L-M-S, called a door offering if you want. Doesn't make any difference. But the point of all of this is that there's no question that God approaches giving as equal sacrifice, not equal dollar amount, equal giving. So the whole thing is, if you don't look at giving what you gave last year and what you're going to give next year as a percentage of what God brings to you, then you're not in the biblical pattern of how to give offerings to God. Well, in our research across the board, thousands of congregations, only 26% of the people approach financial support to the work of the kingdom as a percentage. Only 26%, about one out of four. Come on, how can we be so stupid? When the Bible, very clearly, from Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, God has a plan. It's very, very clear. It works. It's fair because people have certain different amounts of income. It's the percentage, not the dollar amount. As God brings you and makes you more wealthy, the amount goes up because the percentage is the same. And of course, that's returning blessings to God. And yet, one out of four people get it. And churches are always short on money. And we're going to talk about what they do about it. We've touched on the subject before in earlier theses, but we're going to talk about that in coming theses here right away. But it is unbelievable. It is unconceivable to me that we could be so out of touch with the biblical approach, the kingdom approach, and act like it doesn't make any difference. You figure it out. It is just unbelievable. Number 78. We're going to go on this track for a few more here. Congregations often turn to fundraisers. Talked a little bit about that before under a different angle, but this is under the idea of percentage giving. Because if people in the church, no matter what the level of their income, no matter what socioeconomic level of the congregation, they can cover their church. It is not ever an issue of lack of resources it's always, always a lack of giving, and it's always tied to this issue of percentage giving. 
So what we do, we turn to the worldly way of fundraisers. And man, this is a terrible distraction to the mission of the church. And you know what? A lot of these Christians treat these fundraisers as sacred. And it's an abomination. I'm sorry, but it's just terrible. And I'm going to explain more in the next thesis, number 79. Many congregations, what they do is they sell pies and clothing and car washes, and they make it a spiritual thing because it's going to go to missions. It's going to go to some mission project. But you know what the message is? Well, the buyers are going to fund the mission project. So you sell these pies at the fair or whatever, and basically the secular people are funding the mission. That's not God's plan. People understand the mission and the value of the mission are the ones that are supposed to support the mission. So it just really faces this issue of sacrifice. Are people willing to sacrifice for mission? Do you remember what Jesus said? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Baking pies and selling them to unchurched people, does that fit? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What they find is a distraction from what it means to be the church. It also makes unchurched people the buyers rather than your target for mission. Number 80, Christians often baptize fundraisers as spiritual by using the money for missions like the youth mission trip. I want to expand this a little bit further in this one because what happens is when you do that, you are telling people that the church is like the world. And so the people of the church, when they see a church has a booth selling whatever at the county fair, they're looking down the line of all these vendors and they say, yep, I've always felt this way. I've never believed in religion anyway. And here they are, just one other vendor. Yeah, I, I like their pies. They're good pies. I'll buy the pie. But as far as anything else, they're just one other vendor like anyone else at the fair. They're serving up pies rather than serving up Jesus. And those people that are unchurched non-Christians, yeah, they get it. You don't want them to get it that way, but I'll tell you what, they get it. You're doing more harm than you're doing good. And I want to expand on that in this next one. Thesis number 81, when Christians support a youth mission trip by selling baked goods, here's the other issue, it robs Christians from the privilege of being spiritually and personally involved in that mission trip. Now, if they're not in the youth group, they're not going to go on the youth mission trip, but they can be a part of that mission trip by investing in those kids. Selling wares at the fair for the mission trip is not going to inspire those people about the youth, and it's not going to inspire the youth that the adults want to invest in them spiritually and through them and through that mission trip to the people they're doing the mission trip to. So there's all sorts of related downsides to this screwy way churches fund things. And so the other dimension of this is that if you invest in a young person, rather than just taking a door offering for the young people, if it's a personal investment and there's a relational tie, then that young person should be responsible to report to those who support them as to what happened on that mission trip. What happens then? It teaches those young people in the youth group that go on the youth mission trip, it teaches them accountability, a huge spiritual growth issue. <laughs> but there's more. 
if they report with all that enthusiasm and excitement that every young person comes home from every youth mission trip with, that amazing enthusiasm they have about what God did on this mission trip, it increases through their report to their investor. It increases those people's mission zeal. That, in turn, increases the mission mentality, the mission vibrance, the mission health of your church. There are so many issues to this that it's absolutely insane to sell pies to sponsor the youth mission trip. And if you think I'm steamed about that, you got that right. I'm not beating you up, man. I'm just telling you. I'm just saying. This is the way God builds healthy churches for mission. Don't screw it up. Take that holier-than-thou, bizarre pie sales, whatever it is, and turn it into a mission thing that makes sense according to God. Anyway, if I haven't beat you up too hard, we'll go on to episode number nine, our last challenging and interesting look at the 95 Theses for the New Reformation as we look at renewing our churches and our own personal lives. God bless you. I love you. I really do. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.